While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Before I can go to bed, I hate that feeling. Right, because I don't know. Like I, every weekend I I enter into the weekend with this totally unrealistic list of things to do. Like if I looked at the data, <laughs> I would know <laughs> that I had oversubscribed myself for the weekend. And I, but every weekend I'm like, okay, this one's gonna be different. Like I'm gonna get everything done. On Sunday, I'm going to go to bed at like 1130. I'm going to wake up on Monday and just be ready to face the world. And that is never how it works out. Welcome to Overdue, a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we are not ready to face Monday. How's your Monday going, everybody? <laughs> pretty busy, Oh, yeah, because you'll be I listening bet. to this on Monday. Yeah. We're on a tape delay. <laughs> I mean, still, like I'm not 24-hour <laughs> tape delay. Do you have any idea how this works? Do you think people are listening to this right now? I don't know. I don't. Edward Snowden. He could what, be Obama. Obama. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he could be doing it if he he doesn't have time to read books. He's got to like read reports. But he has time to listen to stupid podcasts. Yeah, and and also our podcast, and also our. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. So here's the deal with this thing. This what jam thing? is that every week one of us reads a book and explains it to the other one. <laughs> I didn't know what you were talking about for a second. No, I'm just telling everybody what our jam is. So yeah, this it week, is our jam. Craig read the book. So Craig, what book did you read? I read the book Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman by Richard Feynman. And so I texted you a little while ago. <laughs> with. Yeah, to yeah. ask like what you had read because I like an idiot did not update the homepage this week even though we uploaded an episode like we always do. Yeah, like uh, well, I think that was cuz we were ahead of schedule last week, which is new for us. No, we took you know, Oh, we were, we were behind schedule. Well, we had is... recorded way ahead of schedule and we posted behind schedule. Okay. So, Same um, difference. It all evens out, I think. Yeah. Balance so I, the I texted you to ask, like, okay, what did you read this week? And you texted back, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. And for a second, I didn't know if you were telling me what you had read or if you were, like, incredulous that I was asking you what you had read that I didn't, like, remember. I wish I... Sometimes I wish I were weirder on the phone. <laughs> We'll get to the book in a second, but what sometimes that mean? I wish I were more irreverent with my phone correspondence. Like, Whoa. if I had funnier things to text people, or if if I called you for some reason and then you didn't pick up, and instead of telling you on the voicemail what I needed, if I just like made a weird sound or sang you a song and then just hung up. Like, Do you what a, know anybody who talks on the phone like this? Because this sounds like the most annoying phone behavior. It basically, <laughs> <laughs> it basically sounds like every like uh, every second banana character on every sitcom would do. Okay. Like you know, maybe I just, sometimes I just want to be a little Cosmo Kramer. That's all. Maybe I'm saying. maybe you need a writer's room to like come up with material for oh, you to use on the phone. That'd be pretty sweet if I had a bunch of dudes like. Working Harvard guys mostly. Harvard. <laughs> I got my top men, top men on the situation. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're talking about Richard Feynman. He is a, uh, or was a very respected and well decorated, uh, in addition to well regarded, uh, physicist from the 20th century. <laughs> Are you squinting through that half joke that I just no, made? No, I'm just, no, I'm just, I'm just hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> what when you figured out the code that I sent you, Andrew? What did you, what did you learn about Doctor? No, not, not Doctor. Just just Mister Feynman, I think. Um, I found that he had 
he was like a minor player on the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. I learned that he was like super smart. Uh huh. And he was so he was so smart, but like so. I guess irreverent. I mean, I know we just used that word, but like, there's one anecdote that I read about him where um, Niels Bohr would like seek him out to have discussions with him because Feynman was the only one who was not so awed by him that he wouldn't argue. <laughs> yeah, so that that anecdote's actually in this book, and and we can get to some of that as needed. But the book is was written in the 80s, and by written I mean. Feynman, yeah, right. Feynman sat in a room and talked to his buddy Ralph Lighton, and Lighton then transcribed all of it. Uh, and Lighton was the son of a contemporary of Feynman's, uh, Bob Lighton. So this is Bob and Ralph, great names. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Ralph was Feynman's like drum circle buddy, and told him that he had to record all these awesome stories that he had. Uh, so, like, the overall structure of the book does have a sense of, f- for lack of a better joke, like, surely you're kidding, Grandpa. Like, there is so much stuff in this book <laughs> that Feynman did and is linked to and a part of and weird anecdotes that he has that you can't, you would call BS if this were a relative of yours. If it were not a Nobel laureate, you would be like, clearly this did not happen he's got like a grandpa simpson vibe going on yeah (laughs) yeah he's got a big grandpa simpson vibe going on um but (laughs) not you know that that sounds a lot more of a pejorative than uh it's yeah 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 uh but yeah what you mentioned earlier about his uh his background he was involved in the los alamos project which led to the construction of the atom bomb uh he then taught at Cornell for a little while. He taught in Brazil for like two years, then ended up at Caltech in the early 50s, and he worked at Caltech until he died in in 1988. Uh, He had three wives. um, All at once? No. (laughs) It was like, well, he had them all. I I don't understand physics enough to make a physics joke. I tried to make a Schrodinger's like marriage joke about it and i couldn't i don't even know if that's where you want to go with it i don't know (laughs) (laughs) uh so yeah i don't know um his first wife he married when they were very young when he was working uh on the manhattan project and she had tuberculosis which they knew when they married Mm -hmm. um so she passed a couple years later she passed in 46 uh and then he married again, uh, and he fully admits that it was never going to work. He proposed to his wife via letter, and he like says in the book about how that's a terrible idea because all you remember are all the good parts, and you forget that maybe your relationship is on shaky ground. Uh, and that marriage only lasted two years, and then he married uh, his third wife, Gwyneth, who he stayed with till the day he died. Yeah, two third times the charm. Third times the charm, even even for physicists. <laughs> I always I find it really interesting when people worked on the Manhattan Project, like what their reaction to having worked on the Manhattan Project was. Mm-hmm. And um, it looks like Feynman, you know, he he went through a bit of a depression, like after after everything had finished up, where he kind of felt that future like building for the future was kind of pointless because surely somebody would use the bomb again before. You know, before too long. Yeah, I want to find And everything would just get blown up, which is like, it's really a bummer, but I can't say that I wouldn't feel the same way. Like he, he said at the time, right, when he was asked to join the project, he thought it was worthwhile because if the Germans got there first, then it would be even worse. But then he should have rethought his position on it after the Germans had been defeated and work continued. So, yeah, he... He kind of gets talked into it, not talked into it. I mean, he definitely was uh, asked to join by, I think, Bob Wilson uh, when he was over at Princeton. And he, Bob's like, you have to do it. And uh, Feynman's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And Bob goes, yeah, you are, because I'm going to leave and you're going to find it way too interesting and and not be able to think about anything else. (laughs) Uh, And so he goes out there and 
he quickly ascends the ranks. The whole chapter about Los Alamos is called Los Alamos from below. Um, and he kind of talks about how when he got there, he was at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, Cause you have guys like Robert Oppenheimer there and Einstein's coming by and, you know, all sorts of giant 20th century science minds are mm-hmm. located there. Uh, and then like you're saying, he, in retrospect, he kind of viewed their whole atmosphere as like, we are just trying to solve a problem. It was just, we were doing mathematics. We were working on simulations and other, you know, there were engineers who were literally building the bomb. And he was in a room using old-fashioned computers with punch cards, like simulating explosions and, you know, how energy would be released. Yeah, like I'm sure there were not people working on the Manhattan Project who were sitting in there like rubbing their hands together. (laughs) cackling about how many people they would kill like no 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 i don't i don't know whether i it's probably not right to attribute like i don't know like if they weren't thinking about that i'm tempted to attribute to them just like being in a room solving a problem and not maybe thinking so much about the human cost of it because that's like the detached scientist stereotype yeah, and it's he kind of fits that in some ways. Like he kind of cops to being an emotional robot, or at least not a robot, but like a naive. Like he doesn't always read people the right way, and he's very mm-hmm. blunt. And he both prides himself on that, but recognizes it as a as a fault sometimes. <laughs> um, and so his enthusiasm for getting the work done and and getting to wrestle with those equations um, definitely superseded anything in the moment that would have, that would have made him pause. Right. Uh, the image that has kind of stuck with me as I've been researching Feynman uh, for a show I'm working on actually, which is selfishly why I read it, read this book for our podcast. Craig, um, I've done this before. I just don't always <laughs> disclose it. So, uh is that uh, you can't his, read a book for two reasons? Uh, whoever would read a book for two reasons? Um, let alone who would read a book for an internet radio show? Who would do such a thing? I uh, hope you're listening, Barack. Talk to you soon. Um, call me. <laughs> call me. Uh, his mentor, Bob Wilson, after they watch the first successful test of the bomb, which Feynman prides himself on actually looking at. Uh, whereas all the people around him were wearing like sunglasses and didn't actually see it for what it was. He like went behind a car window or something. That could have been really dumb. <laughs> well, he's, he's a smart <laughs> physics man and knew that ultraviolet rays wouldn't go through the, like the truck windshield that he was looking through or all something. Right. Fair I, enough. Yeah, I guess. Um, you want to claim a little bit of, come on now, but. Then again, he has a no- he had a Nobel Prize, so I guess I can't yeah, say, like I guess now. he probably knows more about <laughs> physics than me. Like, probably, yeah, probably. Uh, but after it, you know, it detonates. Everyone's hooting and hollering. They're so excited. They figured it out. And uh, Bob is sitting on the like the roof of this car, and he's just like moping. And uh, Feynman asks him what it was, and he says, "It's a terrible thing that we made." And uh, Feynman says, but you started it. You got us into it. Uh, We started for a good reason, and then you're working very hard to accomplish something, and it's a pleasure, it's excitement, and you stop thinking. You know, you just stop. Bob Wilson was the only one who was still thinking about it at that moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he goes on to the quotes that you were alluding to earlier, Andrew, where he's like sitting in New York City thinking about the bomb and thinking about all the people around him that are like going about their daily lives building new stuff when it would clearly just get destroyed by more bombs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he ends the chapter with, but fortunately, he says, why are they making new things? It's so useless. But fortunately, it's been useless for about 40 years now, hasn't it? So I'm glad, I'm, I've been wrong about it being useless, making bridges, and I'm glad those other people had the sense to go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then it kind of bums him out of physics for a while. He ends, he, he, dives headlong into teaching he actually turned down a job at the uh illustrious institute for advanced study at princeton uh because he wasn't going to be able to teach enough 
And so he took a job at Cornell and then took a job in Brazil briefly. And then Caltech stole him away from Cornell. Mm -hmm. Um, And he kind of throughout his career has made a habit of trying to reduce is the wrong word, but he doesn't think it's a worthwhile experiment or theory if you can't explain it to the layman. And that kind of shines through in, I I hesitate to call the book writing because it really was just him talking. Um, But you can hear that in his voice. Like he'll just kind of start talking about a topic and then he'll go, ah, yada, 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 and so and so. And and this thing was happening. And every time he talks about his own science, he just goes, and I realized this. And just like, what what happened in your brain that you just (laughs) discovered that science? I don't know. Um, so, okay, this this is uh, like a autobiography, kind of, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, it sounds like it's just structured as a bunch of small stories and anecdotes and things that... Yes. ...that traces the path of his career. Mm-hmm. And um, so he did... There was this one, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, and then a follow-up called What Do You Care What Other People Think? Yes. Um, I've seen these described as semi-autobiographical, and I don't know what that semi is there for. Like, does that mean that he is maybe not an entirely reliable narrator, or he's like mixing some some jokes and with the facts, or like how does that that does I that don't, factor into this at all? That I don't know. It it doesn't. It's not apparent on the page what isn't true about any of this. Um, as I say before, some of it feels very outlandish uh there's a whole chapter about his enthusiasm for safe cracking that involves him wandering around the los alamos compound memorizing parts of people's like codes to their safes so that then he could break into their safes and become this like renowned safe cracker among the scientist community it's really bizarre (laughs) And just, I, I was a renowned safe cracker among <laughs> like the internet writing community. <laughs> but it's like he paints this picture of himself that anytime he's in someone's office and they open their sa- their like their locked drawer to show him a report or something, he wanders over to that drawer and fiddles with the lock until he can memorize a couple of the numbers using a system he developed. Which is like, if that happened to you, that can't be true. I don't. If you saw someone fiddling with your drawers, your desk drawers, <laughs> excuse desk drawers, me, okay. uh, while you were trying to go over stuff regarding the atom bomb, you might, like, stop him? He probably waited till they were gone, right? Like, I, No, not all the time. Because one of his systems that he was using was that the particular lock, you could figure out two of the numbers while the lock was open because of the mechanism. So okay. he would he would fiddle with one of the pieces of the lock while the the cabinet itself was open. So he just he could just pass it off as a tick then, I think. Yeah, probably like oh, there's Feynman fiddling with my cabinets again. He just sounds like his... he was bored. Like it sounds like he didn't have enough to do. <laughs> well, he he did say they they didn't have any entertainment in Los Alamos. Like all of their letters outside were being censored and um there was no TV or radio or anything like that. So, yeah, he was amusing himself by cracking safes. But, yeah, that it stretches a little bit of the imagination at times. Like, sure. um, the circumstance of him in Brazil playing in a, like, Brazilian drum band for Carnival, which, okay, that probably happened. But the, like, <laughs> the detail of him in the hotel that he'd been leaving through the basement so that he could wear grungier clothes. And the waiter goes up to him and says, Oh, did you hear there's going to be this great like Samba parade? You'll probably get a kick out of it. And he goes, Oh, I can't go. And he doesn't tell the waiter, the waiter why he can't go. Cause he's in the parade. And then like later the waiter like spots him in the parade and goes, Oh, professor. And it's like a, like what a wonderfully conceived of moment that maybe happened to a person. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe it's a composite of several moments. So like, okay, the, the when we do like nonfiction and and biographies yeah. and stuff, we try really hard to move away from just saying here's the thing that happened. Uh-huh. Um so what did you learn anything about physics from this book? No, not that much. Uh and that's one of the harder 
things about reading Feynman is that he can get he's so conversational and so uh enjoyable to read as a as a like just teller like spinner of yarns as it were mm-hmm. that the couple chapters where he does dig into the physics of it I definitely got lost like and I and that's something I'm struggling with as I as I research Feynman in general is that you know he'll start talking about muons and I don't know what a muon is I know that quarks exist I know they're important. Sounds like a cow particle, like some kind of. Oh, I hate you so like much! Like a right building now. <laughs> building block of cows. Would you call a gluon a horse particle? Because gluons Maybe. are real. <laughs> yeah, no, because they horses are made out of glue. <laughs> I. Yeah, I can only glean. He's working at such an advanced level of physics that I barely understand. Like it's quantum physics which is designed to hurt your brain um the stuff that he was working with is is like so it's all the stuff that's happening in the large hadron collider like what are they smashing in there i don't even like i don't what are they looking for they're looking for like a part some kind of particle a god particle i think they found it i thought that they thought that they found it i know that they had to shut it down because there might have been toast in the large hadron collider <laughs> Like someone got a crumb of toast in it. It seems maybe I need to watch more in the old grass Tyson because it seems like <laughs> in the scientific community, like sometimes you get to the point where something is holding the entire universe together and you don't know what it is, mm-hmm. and so you assume that it's there because it's the only explanation, but you don't know that it's there. Like like dark matter. Yeah, I don't know. Like dark matter is crazy because it's just like it's just black. It's just black stuff that's out in space because none of physics as we know it would make sense <laughs> without it if it weren't out there. <laughs> so we ha- we like haven't observed it. We haven't discovered it. At least like like as far as the physics class I took in college a decade ago. Uh huh. Knows. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we just assume it's out there, which is, I don't know, which is simultaneously cool and like, are you sure you know what you're doing? (laughs) Every time, there's a really good quote, and I don't know who it's attributed to, if it's Niels Bohr or someone else that might be Niels Bohr, that if quantum quantum physics doesn't make your head hurt, you're not thinking about it right. Like, the, the idea that things exist in multiple places at any given time because otherwise physics doesn't work. Like at the at the very microscopic subatomic level, and that thing with like electrons or something, I don't know. Yeah, rotating the the spin of electrons. Yeah, um, electrons. And that's a science thing that I yeah, know. Yeah, there's another thing. I think it's like electrons can't. You can only measure either their speed or their location, but you can never measure both. Which is like, when I say it out loud, I know that that's true, but I don't know why. Like, there's a lot of physics things that I stumble across where I'll trust, okay, I'll trust you, Dick Feynman. That's fine. I'll trust you. I don't know. Like, what's the, what's the smallest unit that you understand? That I understand? Yeah. I thought I understood electrons and I don't anymore. Okay. So you back it up one. (laughs) I mean, I I guess I understand like sugar, like sugar grains, sugar granules. Explain sugar granules to me. They're sweet. They make stuff better. Explain the physics of sugar to me. I don't know the physics of it. I just like <laughs> I I can wrap my head around sugar. I put this in or on stuff and it makes it taste better but be worse for me. Okay. Great. Yeah. That's what I, about you. What's the I thing? know Oh, I know that that uh nothing ever really touches. I understand that. Like because I'm trying to make like what's a joke that I <laughs> Is there a joke? Make a joke that's not like terrible. <laughs> uh, they're all terrible. Don't worry about it. Just just hit me with that's, it. Nothing ever really touches what? Yeah, because so like hugs aren't real. Hugs are not real. You can never actually hug someone. Think about it. Think about oh, that. That's such a bummer. But science. But, but that's everyone ever. They're all trying to hug. And they never can. That's like beautiful and sad and like a plastic bag from American Beauty way. Mostly sad though. So like every atom is constantly moving 
and has a bunch of electrons in it. And the electrons can't, like, if they collide with one another, they emit light. And, you know, that 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 is one type of reaction that then you fall down that rabbit hole and you're setting off atomic bombs. But... Your I was atoms. gonna say that, like, what if you hugged in it and it both, like lit up a little bit? The nuclear hug. Yeah, I think that sounds cooler than nobody can hug. <laughs> what happens if you don't like science? Can you like try to change it so that it's better? So okay, so here's something that's sort of related to this, to, <laughs> to what you just said. Okay. Um, there's a really Feynman closes the book with an adapted commencement address from like the 70s. And it's actually a really good summation of his whole approach to science, which is approaching things... Oh, I, I can't believe I used approach twice, I'm sorry. Um, coming at things, or it's, I don't know, uh, with a rigorous empirical curiosity. So you need to do experiments and you need to do them thoroughly. You can't publish a study that only supports the thesis you wanted in the first place, if right. that makes sense. Uh, especially, and I, mean, I, was, I think that's pretty core to to evaluating anything. Is like if you do have a preconceived notion, like try not to let it influence your results, or like try not to bend the data to to conform to what you think is right. Yeah, and and he was kind of smart in saying that even as you're running that experiment you need to be thinking about all the ways that your experiment could be proven wrong so that you account for that in your test um, otherwise someone else will and you will be proven wrong yeah uh, and I was reading that kind of thinking it kind of hit home for me in in a nonprofit way that like definitely in my field and uh, it's in the sciences as well like everyone's always competing for financial support right um, or support from entities or you know institutions, and the best way to do that is to run an experiment or or run a project and then claim that it had such and such a result. And if you do the experiment or do the project with the aim of getting whatever that support is, you are probably clouding your judgment. You're you're muddying the results by not allowing for your own failure or yourself yeah to i be mean wrong. like that's that, that's that's pretty much every funding project ever <laughs> i don't know if i've talked on the show about the time when i um edited um reports for i, I don't know how like specific i should be but it was like i was editing reports for a like a government subcontractor great that's basically. fair enough yeah and it was like you know it was about giving out aid and every report was just this bend over backwards attempt to make it look like the money was doing something because if mm -hmm. the money's not doing anything then you don't get any anymore it's like that yeah. that that thing that you have to do in management where if you are given a budget and you get to the end of your like pay period or whatever, and you haven't used it all, you find a way to blow it all on something. Or otherwise, otherwise yeah. you lose it next year. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Um, and he kind of fell into that when he's talking. It's not in the book. It's in the second book that you mentioned, Andrew. Um, what was that one called? What do you care what other yeah. people think? The second half of that book uh, apparently is all about Feynman's participation in the Challenger investigation right um which when the challenger exploded and uh the commission that was put together to investigate what happened they kind of brought Feynman in as like a celebrity scientist to lend some credence to it and and get people kind of feeling like they had the brightest minds available to work on it mm -hmm. and he was routinely annoying to everyone involved <laughs> Like, he just had a certain doggedness and kind of agita about the whole process that people on the commission were willing to criticize NASA once he proved what had happened, um, which was that the O-ring was faulty. Right. Uh, but he wanted NASA, like, completely out of the space shuttle business until they had proven that they had fixed this thing. And mm -hmm. the commission refused to go that far because, you know, it's a government organization and... 
there are reasons and PR reasons to have that organization still intact and still doing yeah. the thing it was doing. Uh, and they, he basically had to bully them into publishing his kind of dissenting opinion, as it were, as an appendix, where he said that they should not, you know. They... That, just, that just sucks. And I think it's endemic to government stuff, especially, is like you have to fight tooth and nail to get any funding yeah. or anything at all. And then once you have it, like, it is maybe just as hard, you know, unless they built in, like, a time frame um, when they when they implemented whatever program it is. But, like, it's it's just as hard to defund stuff sometimes, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I get, sometimes I get bummed out when I think about all the, like, all the waste and all the crap that's just, like, that's being spent and it's not helping anybody do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's hard because you, where else does that, where does some of that money come from? Like when you look at it as social services, right? Mm -hmm. Like somebody has got to fund some of this stuff. I don't know how you prove that it's all necessary. And I don't know that you, there's enough time in the world to prove that all, that every dollar was spent correctly. But, Mm -hmm. um, because if you can't allow for mistakes, then no one would spend money on anything, right? Yeah. I don't so, know. So that's that's one takeaway from this book is that money sucks. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> he's no. I, I would not. I would not say that Feynman dives too hard into money, but the issue being that uh, doing things for the sake of the system is not worth it. Right. Uh, there's a pretty good. Again, I can't re- I can't remember all the quotes about Feynman, like who said them, but there's one about him not liking formalism, but being really into content. So he's kind of willing to work outside the system. And he was pretty strict about feeling like if he couldn't do the math to understand something, then it he didn't want to know it. Like he, he didn't think that... Uh, he could grasp he he wasn't going to take anything on face value if that makes sense sure yeah um like and that goes from the top of the ladder to like really inventive innovative equations and and proofs and things that were happening to a whole chapter that he spends kind of testing on ants in his office like he built like a little fairy system for ants on his windowsill and he's like moving them around to see if they understood the space they were in to kind of prove what their memory is or isn't as total nutty professor nonsense man <laughs> Utter... so was, was he if, if was he like the bill nye or the <clears throat> neil degrasse tyson of his day like oh yeah he the was popu- like the oh, science populist, scientist yeah. slash populist guy. Yeah, I mean, this book sold really well. His uh, collected lectures on physics, which he talks about briefly in this book, um, and I think Caltech recently made them available free online. They're the most read physics textbook, especially in the English-speaking world, at least. Uh, and he was asked by Caltech to give a series of uh, freshman and sophomore year lectures just on physics um, mm-hmm. and one of the things he does in, in the excerpts of those that I've read really well and he, he expresses a lot of interest in it in this book as well is how physics intersects with other aspects of science um, and other aspects of, of culture as well um, because at the beginning of the 20th century, physics was still like a new science, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. We're still, we're coming out of biology and, and chemistry, which we kind of understood pretty well at that point. And then. Well, to the extent that we. Well, to the extent that you and I, I mean, There's still a them. whole bunch of stuff that we don't know. <laughs> and especially if we're talking about like us personally. Yeah. Oh, it's even worse. <laughs> uh, but physics and. What, particularly his contributions to physics with regard to the behavior of light, which was his what he won the Nobel for, was quantum electrodynamics mm-hmm. uh, and the way that light behaves not just like a particle or a wave. It behaves as both. Thanks, <laughs> nature. Uh, 
that kind that ripple ad is that has ripple effects in other disciplines um be it chemistry or you know how cellular organisms work or anything like that so he's science yeah man it's pretty it's pretty make up your mind like be a thing or don't one one of my favorite Feynman quotes in general is and i'm sure there are things that I have an analogy for this that I'll I'll share in a second. I'm sure you have one too, Andrew. Is he describes working in science and looking at nature as like Martians watching a game of chess and not knowing the rules, but we ha but like not being told the rules up front, but like watch this game and watch the behavior and see if you can figure out the rules. Sure. And then you'll see circumstances that are different from what you expected and then you have to account for those and there are rules that you just don't understand yet um so he's very open to every theory is the best every like current theory it's because it's the best one we have at the moment like mm-hmm. he's very rigid about that um and for me like i i read that and i immediately thought of when i was in london a couple years ago watching cricket on tv and i don't know how cricket works <laughs> But I, but after a couple rounds of it, I can at least make educated guesses about what the goals are in mm-hmm. cricket and what some of the rules are. That's and how I learned how to play euchre in high school. Like I, I just watched people play euchre for a long time. I've watched you play euchre, and you've taught me, and I don't know how to play euchre. <laughs> That's I don't know why, and maybe it's like, uh, uh like hillbilly Ohio thing or. Like an old people thing because I, I mean, I learned euchre in high school and then I perfected euchre when I was working in that working third shifts at that chip factory, <laughs> the chip factory. playing euchre with all the regulars. Uh-huh. So I don't know if it's like an old person's game or a, like a, yeah, like a hick backwoods backwater game. It might be a mix of both, right? Yeah. Just old hillbillies. Yeah. Playing euchre. Sitting around playing anyway, euchre. Anyway, <laughs> none of my friends know how to play euchre and it is a... You guys are all disappointments to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, so and I'll just say one of the other running themes of the book and, and of Feynman's kind of self-image, because that's really what the book is, is, is it's him sharing and shaping his self-image as he tells all these stories, right? Mm-hmm. He kind of champions himself as this common man, like he's from Rockaway in New York, and... At one point, when he's getting the Nobel Prize, he talks about how he learned from his father, who was in the uniform industry, that he knows the difference between a man in uniform and a man out of uniform. Do you know the difference, Andrew? Uh, One is in uniform. There's no difference. They're the same guy. Get it? Yeah, that's like a good old timey idiom. I like that. Um, But he and he opens one one whole chapter talking about how. He never understood the humanities and culture. Like he didn't, he thought that being practical and knowing how things worked was the way to go, and that taking an interest in things like art was for dummies, <laughs> basically. Which is weird for a guy who is in a drum circle. Well, that came to <laughs> came to him later in life, <laughs> and he confesses that that kind of was not good thinking on his part. In the long term, but yeah, he made his. I was going to ask, like, what hippy dippy scientist he did like, works on the bomb, yeah. and then joins a drum circle. Well, he did. Yeah, he spent the first third of his life in New York, and then moved to California in the fifties. Andrew, of course, he's going to join a drum circle. Here we come. Um, and then California. <laughs> Here we come. The OC, starring Richard Feynman. <laughs> uh, and Albert Einstein. Uh, but then he's he also kind of paints himself as this irreverent prankster with no respect for the system, uh, which gets him ahead and then kind of leads him into this appreciation of art that I think starts with or kind of fully develops in his his uh, interest in drawing mm-hmm. um, and, and painting, which... He ended up selling a bunch of paintings under an, under an assumed name, which is kind of weird. 
Uh, What's the name? Do we know? It's the last name's O'Fay. I mean, okay. I think it came out later that it was him doing it, but oh, okay. he he's very like. Are they worth anything? Are they any good? They were. He he had a really kind of enlightened comment about the paintings. Is that he to him anyway? Who didn't need to subside on the paintings? Selling a painting was not about the money. It was about having someone respond like viscerally to sure. a thing that he created and want it in their house. Um, you ever notice cool. how things are only not about the money when people already have money already? Yeah, man. He got, there are a couple <laughs> times where there's some not so humble brags in the book. And that's part of it too. Like when he's talking about whether or not he wanted to accept the Nobel prize. And then there's a part where he's talking about like his competing offers from Caltech and Cornell and how he's like, there's some, idiom of like a donkey between two bales of hay like walking back and forth because it can't pick which which one's better uh-huh it's like okay which like golden bale <laughs> of hay do you want <laughs> okay we get it uh i don't know there's like there's this guy and I, I don't need to name names because not because i think that he's ever going to listen to this but just because it's not it's not like a classy thing to do but that sounds fair <laughs> there's this guy um a particular guy in the technology community who likes to who fancies himself a media critic okay and um i don't know he he likes to um come down he likes to crack down on like common practices you know things like rewriting press releases and, and I don't know, like slideshows and the crappy stuff that sites kind of have to do to make ends meet. Kind of like a, he's a watchdog. He's an internet yeah, watchdog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But like this is all coming from a guy who has sold, who's like helped create and then sold several large companies like himself. So whenever you have a guy like that being like, oh, who could who could like debase themselves by doing this? Why don't you go and like follow your dreams and do something worthwhile? Like it's really easy to say for somebody who doesn't have to pay the bills. I don't know. This is only tangentially related to Feynman, but <laughs> no, I, I know what you're saying though, but this, it, I don't know. Like at the same time, people who don't have to worry about making a living are free to, pursue like purer forms of something i guess like like yeah in an ideal world that's what you'd be trying to do with art all the time is like elicit an emotional response watch me tie this back to the book though yeah no hit it there's a when he is discussing this golden donkey scenario or whatever it was he actually talks about his kind of insistent need to teach and how if he kind of went to that ivory tower science scenario the pressure would be humongous to always be thinking of something huge. Mm -hmm. And teaching allows him to, when he doesn't have something huge, just kind of dive back into the elementary parts of science that are always worth revisiting because someone younger than you will show up and have a new perspective on it. And maybe you've you know figured out a new way to teach it or you discovered a new example of it that is useful and he's really big on examples. Uh, so for him, teaching was not just a way of earning a paycheck, but kind of an, an implicit part of the science itself. Mm -hmm. That if you can't have it replicated by another person, a generation or four generations from now, it's not worth doing. Um, and then his like, what led him back into producing his own work and experiments that led to the Nobel was like, apparently the story goes a, <laughs> he saw a, a kid at Cornell, like toss up or Caltech toss a plate in the air and it was like wobbling. And the rate of the wobble was at a certain ratio to the rate of spin on an insignia on the plate. And he thought, Oh, that's interesting. And then he started doing the math about it and then took that math all the way down to the subatomic level about why there are like neat ratios of motion. Uh, and then that led him to a whole bunch of other discoveries. So science is crazy is, is the takeaway that I'm getting. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, man. It's <laughs> nuts. And what's, and he won his Nobel for not even just describing a thing, but coming up with a weird, like, path integration math thing i don't understand 
and then a bunch of squiggly line diagrams that are really useful for like describing particles without using any math whatsoever. Okay. Yeah. It's really it's some weird wild stuff. If if you want to hurt your head, go read about quantum physics. <laughs> so like okay, to to wrap it up, I guess. Um I don't know like why was this book so popular, do you think? Like you know, most people are not quantum physicists, so this must have something in it that resonates with the lay person it's, and like mm. and appealing to the lay person was part of his shtick i guess so like what what's the deal what did you get out of this you kind of nailed it right there it's it's the the appeal of the great scientist the great mind being not unlike you in a number of ways like he went to strip clubs and likes women a lot and talks about that. He's curious about a lot of different things that aren't just science, but he also has a kind of emotional appreciation for what is beautiful about the laws of, of science and nature. Um, I shouldn't say laws of science, laws of nature um, that he kind of puts up there in parallel with, you know, religious feelings that people have and, and the same kind of reverence for art and beauty that, that people have. So there's something about that, like the shared emotional content you can have with someone who is, you know, unlocked secrets of the universe that I don't even still don't understand. Right. Like the discoveries yeah. he made are 50 years old and I have, I'm barely beginning to grasp them slash their importance electrons electron no <laughs> uh positrons what are positrons andrew um they're really just just they're really they're anti-electrons they're really just upbeat had they had got a good outlook just really happy little particles yeah so yeah so there's there's the kind of more deeper connection there's the deeper connection to a, a very intellectual person uh, kind of making that appealing on an emotional level. And then there's just the reading a book of funny stories and and stories that may or may not have been massaged in his memory to, to be the funniest version of themselves. Um, that's often how stories are. That's, that's just a, the nature of the storytelling beast, you know. It needs a good massage. I need a good massage. All right. Well, if you, the listener, <laughs> have any leads on a good massage uh, for Andrew, you can email them to overduepod at gmail.com. You can tweet your overdue massage links uh, to twitter.com slash overduepod or, or coupon code. Or coupon code. <laughs> Uh, for my, for Nigerian massages uh, or you can put them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash overdue pod. I want to give a shout out uh, to Annie Smith who joined our Facebook page to talk about uh, our Juno Diaz episode last week Yay. and kind of gave us a little bit of a pass on, on how the, the women were treated in that book and kind of fell in line with it. Uh, points that fell in line with what we were talking about which is always a good feeling <laughs> yeah no it's like the opposite of what happens every time we talk about jane austen so. yeah uh <laughs> eric wrote that denmark is actually part of scandinavia this goes back all the way to our beowulf episode um so go back go back and listen to the old episodes and write Man. us letters about them <laughs> what's the statute of limitations on being wrong about something <laughs> i feel like well he did get it's he gave less us than a out, year though. he said that in uh in English usage, we we commonly just refer to that peninsula as Scandinavia and leave out Denmark because it's not hmm. part of the peninsula. And I know for, for my sake, that's ninth grade geography is what put that in my brain. <laughs> um, Stephanie, Jennifer, J. Deep, Renee, Kara, and Robert all tweeted at us this, uh, this week, so thanks to them. Uh, and thanks to who else? Mel in Philly said hi to me this week about the show. So thanks, Mel. Andrew, um, what else can they you, do to learn about our show? I was just, I was just gonna get on it. Okay. Um, they can go to um, overduepodcast.com, which is where we keep 
our links to the present episode and the past episodes. And um, we have um, iTunes and RSS links that you can use to subscribe to the show. Um, also up on that website, we have Amazon links to all the books that we've talked about. And if you click through those, you know, you click through those links, you go to Amazon, you buy the books and whatever else you need to, you need to pick up. Like if you need to get like a, a like a video game or some kind of like crayon box or something like they'll deliver dog food Amazon. like they'll deliver yeah. dog food <laughs> whatever you need um you buy that after clicking on one of our links and we get a little bit of a cut which helps us pay for hosting and for books and for all the stuff that keeps the show going so um, when you do that we really do appreciate it um is there anything else are, are we're gonna keep next week's book under wraps until we know that it's definitely happening are we gonna or do we want to tease it? I feel like I'm, I want to tease it because I'm excited. All right, about you it, tease but it. We don't have to tease it. All right. So we ha- we have ordered the books and we hope that they come in time for next week's show. And if they don't, it'll be the week after that. But um, we are going to try reading uh, one of the original Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yeah. Which, which one did we settle on? Chris? I think the Mystery of Chimney Rock. Is that the one? I know it's Chimney Rock. Uh, yes, the mystery of Chimney Rock. Choose your own adventure, number five. And this is is going to be a little different than our regular episodes because we are not going to read it ahead of time. We are basically just going to choose our own adventure <laughs> on the air and see what happens, what? which I think could be fun. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. It's like I feel like it's like you're playing an on rails version of D&D. Yeah, we're either, it's either going to be the best thing we've ever done and that's going to be the rest of the show from now on or it's going to be <laughs> an abject failure. Yeah. Cuz I heard I, I, it feels like an idea for its own show. We'll or see. it feels like a thing we do once and then we never speak of it again. Yeah. But um yeah, if we if we don't do that next week, I'm going to try and read something and and we'll just come back with a regular episode and save that experiment for another time, but that is what is happening as far as I know. If you've read The Mystery of Chimney Rock and want to send us some pointers. like No, no spoilers. No, well, no spoilers, but just like, watch out for page 56. Like, I, would, I think that's a spoiler. <laughs> well, it's not a spoiler that there is a page 56. No, but if they tell you to watch out for it, like the implication is that it's a bad ending. Yeah. So, All right. Share your Choose Your Adventure thoughts with us though i'd be interested yeah. to hear them if you want to choose our own adventure you can keep sending us book recommendations uh, this week we got um something telling us we should read more canadian authors which is it's just totally fine mm-hmm. that's a good idea um, margaret atwood was brought up so you know she's been added to the google document that we keep all those on so um if you have recommendations do keep sending them our way and um craig do you have anything else nope Okay, um, until next week, everybody, try to be happy.